0: So much of our lives is wrapped up in the temporary and what we can see here and now rather than the future and what we can't see. And it should be the opposite. And we'll help you with that next on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. You know, as Christians, we've been bought for the purpose of enjoying another place, heaven. So often we get wrapped up in this place here on earth and where we're at now that we fail to lose sight of the glory of heaven. Well, here in the Lord's Prayer, we have a petition. Uh, keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. And wrapped up in that petition is the fact that we are asking God to perfect our sanctification and salvation at our death and resurrection. Which means, as Christians, we need to be looking forward to that time that we will find ourselves before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face. If that doesn't excite you, then stick around. Our prayer is that we'll do just that. Bring about an excitement in your life. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner now with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. We
1: will be totally conformed to His image morally and spiritually so that there will be no desires in our lives contrary to what He desires for us. There will be no desire to live any other kind of life than the life that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to live. But here's another great thought. The glorification of the believer and the perfection of his salvation is not individualistic but covenantal. That's a great theological statement, and here's what it means. It means that the glorification of believers will happen to all of us at the very same time. When God glorifies me, He is going to glorify you. It's going to happen to all of us at the same time. All of us who are regenerated in this life will be raised from our graves. And the moment we are raised from our graves, all of us at one time together will be glorified. And our salvation will be complete. The entire church of God, the Israel of God, the family and kingdom of God, the covenant community of God. The entire church will all be glorified at once those who, shall, who have died shall be raised from the dead, and those who are alive at that time will be resurrected without experiencing death, and then the entire church of God at the same time will be glorified and will experience the perfection of salvation. So, beloved, love the church now. You know, all of those people who have visited us over the years and you know, didn't particularly like us and All those who don't think much of Reconstructionists. They're stuck with us. They're stuck with us throughout all eternity. We must learn to put up with each other, beloved. We need to learn to love each other and respect each other. Because there is coming a day when we will all cross the finish line at the very same time. And you're going to look at me And I'm going to look at you, and you're going to say, congratulations, Gary, I didn't think you'd make it. (laughs) But there is coming a time when we will all cross the finish line at the same time. And that is when God perfects our salvation. Our catechism says that one aspect of the completing of our salvation is the trotting of Satan under our feet. Beloved, our salvation cannot be completed unless Satan is completely beaten down underfoot. Because as long as he is around, he will always be a threat. There is always going to be a problem. There will be no rest. You will always have to keep your shield up. So if salvation is going to be complete, Satan must be eliminated from the picture. And to say that he has trodden underfoot is obviously an allusion to a string of texts that we find throughout Scripture about the defeat of Satan. And to understand them, let me give you just a quick introduction. There are three aspects to this defeat of Satan that the Bible talks about. There was a decisive defeat of Satan when Christ died on the cross There is a gradual and progressive defeat of Satan through the faithfulness of Christians and the preaching of the gospel. And there is a final and complete destruction of Satan at the very end of the world when Jesus comes back. Now let's look at the texts that make reference to this. First, Genesis 3.15. Here you have the first gospel promise in the Bible right after the fall where Paul says, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here is a promise that the seed of the woman the virgin-born Messiah would bring total deliverance, total victory over Satan subjectively and objectively in people's hearts as well as in the history of the universe that he will crush Satan's head. You know, and then you have the picture of Golgotha. And Golgotha means the place of the skull. And the cross of Jesus crushes right into the top of that skull where Christ died. Now, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, you'll see how Jesus won the victory over evil that was promised all of us way back in Genesis 3.15. Listen carefully. It says, "...since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through the second coming he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." Anyone have that translation? I actually hope you do not. Because here is what it actually says Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Where was this great battle defeating Satan that so many talk about? Where did it take place? Or where will it take place? Not in some future cataclysmic event at the return of Christ. But at the great cataclysmic event in the center of history. Where Jesus died on the cross. Guaranteeing. The defeat of Satan then and there. There is not, and I hate to break your bubble, there is not some cosmic battle that is going to take place at Armageddon or wherever when Satan will be defeated. There was a cosmic event outside of Jerusalem on Golgotha where the Lord Jesus Christ once and for all dealt a death blow to Satan. So though he is alive, his head is crushed, and whatever power he displays is under God's sovereign control. Turn to Romans 16, 20. Every little word in this short sentence is important. It says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So Calvary has taken place. The resurrection has already taken place and now he is addressing the church and he says, I've got three or four things I want to tell you. Number one, God will bring priests to the... Peace to this world by crushing Satan himself. Number two, God will destroy Satan in history by his church. God will crush Satan's head under your feet as you are faithful in obeying God's law and as you are faithful in the proclamation of that gospel. And he will do it speedily and soon. That is, in history, beginning with the first century and then increasingly throughout history. The Lord Jesus Christ crushed Satan's head. And beloved, you hold your foot on Satan's head as you are faithful to Christ and submit yourself to his word and as you bear witness to the word in this culture. The God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly in history. Turn again to Romans 16. I want to show you the kind of people God will use to crush Satan's head and get the victory over him. Let's read verses 17 through 19. This is the kind of person that will be involved in keeping Satan's head crushed. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause divisions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Now, notice three traits of those under whose feet God will cross Satan's head. Number one. They separate themselves from heresy and unbelief. They are able to discover what heresy is and the division that it causes, and they turn away from it. They separate themselves from those who teach heresy. Second, they are wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and they have a reputation for that. They are wise and they know how to obey the law of God. They know how to put it into effect in their lives. They know how to teach it to their children and give them good advice. They are wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The Bible teaches us that through the faithfulness of the church and the preaching of the church that the gates of hell, listen carefully, That the gates of hell shall not be able to prevail against the church's war against it. The church in the Bible is not pictured as a city under surge by the power of evil. But it is pictured as a great army attacking the capital city of the enemy. And the enemy forces are not able to turn away and resist the onslaughts of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, He is going to end that battle. He is going to finish it. He'll end Satan's power for evil totally and eternally. Casting in him into hell to be tormented all day and all night. Helpless to resist or escape. Incapable of ever being any threat to the church and to the universe again. Now understand. That Satan is not now in hell tormenting people. Many people believe that today. That Satan's down there in hell sticking people with a pitchfork and stoking the flames. Satan is not in hell. Satan is going to go to hell. He wants to stay out of hell as long as he can. But the Bible says that someday he will go to hell. Where he himself will be will be punished and tormented day and night forever. In fact, in Revelation 20.10, we read these words. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when Jesus comes back again, and he raises us from the dead, and judges the human race, and, re, and uh, 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 sorry, re, anyway, makes the world new. <laughs> At that point, he is also going to cast Satan into hell. Well, he will never be able to bother anyone ever again. Now, I want you to notice something. Notice who is already there when Satan is cast into hell. The beast and the false prophet. Satan is not going to be cast into hell until the end of history. But when he is cast into hell, Revelation 10 says there is already going to be two things there. Number one, anti-Christian, tyrannical states, the beast. And number two, apostate religions and religionists, the false prophet. Civil and ecclesiastical opposition to Christ will be ended and cast into hell in history before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Satan is thrown into hell, they will already be there waiting for him. Christ is going to throw Satan into hell. He's going to close the lid, and he will never have to deal with him again throughout all eternity. Now, all that I have said amounts to this. Beginning with your death and consummated in your resurrection from that moment on, you are fully, completely, totally free from sin, temptation, and evil, and all of their consequences forever. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the two requests Paul made for the Thessalonian Christians that you and I should make for ourselves, because here's another prayer, that if we pray it, we can be certain it will happen. God does not give us prayers in the Bible and say, pray this, but I'm never going to answer it. When God gives us a prayer to pray in the Bible, He wants us to pray it, and He will answer that prayer as we pray it. Now, notice the two requests. First of all, sanctify the believers entirely, lock, stock, and barrel from beginning to end in every aspect of their lives. Don't leave one aspect of their human personality unsanctified. And two Preserve them completely in spirit, soul, and body, so that at the coming of Christ, they will stand before Him without blame. Lord, preserve them physically, spiritually, morally, emotionally, mentally, in every way, so that when they stand before you at your coming, they will be totally morally blameless. This process is perfected on your soul when you die, and it is perfected on your whole person when you stand before God on judgment day. So the final answer to our praying, the sixth petition, that we be delivered from temptation will not be answered until we die. I trust you will be praying the sixth petition until you die. And of course, God does in many ways answer the petition before you do die. We've already learned that God keeps us from temptations that are too big for us to bear. We've learned that God supports us in the face of our temptations. We've learned that God recovers us from temptation when we have caved into it. And we have learned that God helps us to learn lessons from temptations so we can avoid caving into similar, similar temptations in the future. But God is not going to completely answer your praying of the sixth petition until you die and are raised from the dead when you are set free forever from all sin, temptation, and death. The moment you die, God answers more of this petition, delivering you from evil spiritually. But then at resurrection, He answers the rest of it and delivers you physically and morally from sin and its effects in physical resurrection. And what a great day that will be. Beloved, is your heart rejoicing? in the knowledge that when you die, God will not leave your physical body in the grave and will not allow you to see corruption. Psalm sixteen nine is true of Jesus and of you and I as believers. It says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh shall also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will your Holy One see corruption." Just as God saved you from spiritual death in regeneration, God will save your body from physical death in resurrection. And then as a complete human being, you will stand before God through all eternity in sweet, intimate, uninterrupted, undisturbed love and fellowship. How can we not rejoice? Is this what your heart hopes for? Is this what your heart dreams of? Are you rejoicing in the physical resurrection of your body at the end of this world? Or are you being distracted by the bright lights of this world? Here's what Matthew Henry says. Those who live faithfully for Christ now with God in their eyes. That is, with a preview of living God's glory and God's honor and God's praise and God's uh, glory may die comfortably with heaven in their eyes. Beloved, I can't think of a better way to die. I've had a lot of people tell me that loved ones of theirs who died screaming in utter terror because they were facing Satan himself. They had hell in their eyes. It is so sweet to watch someone die who has heaven in their eyes. Peace and serenity. Those who die with God in their eyes will die comfortably as they look toward an eternity in heaven. Lastly, beloved, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ who longs for glorious eternity with Him, then live every day as an heir with God and a joint heir with Christ of all these heavenly blessings and realities. Don't set your heart on prosperity and riches and honor and entertainment, ease and affluence. Do enjoy them when they come. But those things are not worthy of mention in comparison with the realities we will receive when our salvation is perfected. Don't let any of these things hinder you in your pursuit of the crown. And if you encounter adversity and oppression and trials and tribulations and persecutions and poverty and even death for the sake of Christ, don't even be too troubled about those things. For in comparison to what we will receive when we are perfected in our salvation, those things amount to nothing. As Paul said, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. And when you experience trials and pain and tribulations in this world, instead of giving in to them and groaning and being discouraged, allow yourself to rejoice. For the Bible says, Blessed is the person who endures temptation. For when he is tried, he he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Beloved, set your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ as you run this race of life. The goal of the race that the Christian runs is to see Christ experiencing the total victory and the new life of his kingdom. That's what Paul kept his focus on. He said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus And the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that as we run the race of life, we are to keep our eyes fixed on the goal. Have you ever seen someone run the 100-yard dash? And as he's running, look over into the stands to see his girlfriend and wave? Of course not. He'd never win. And winning is his goal. So he has his eyes fixed on that goal and he is distracted by nothing. And that is the picture that God has for us as Christians. God says run the race. Exert the energy necessary to run the race successfully. Don't live any kind of life that will tangle up your feet and weigh you down. And fix your eyes on the goal. Fix Your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised its shame and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it is for this reason that Paul knew to set his eyes on the things he hadn't seen. Yet, he was able to testify in summing up his life in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. And in essence he was saying. All that matters to me. Is that Christ is being preached. And that he is being glorified. That is all that matters. Beloved I encourage you. To live like that. And make Philippians 121. Your life motto. And I encourage you to pray. Often and with great zeal. Lord lead me not in temptation. But deliver me from evil. And one day. The moment you die, you will set your eyes on Jesus and never again will you ever have to take your loving eyes off of his loving face.